This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi Fi again when you can have a brilliant, hyper fast, super simple Wi Fi system with Eero. And now the second generation Eero is tri band and twice as fast as its predecessor. For free overnight shipping, visit Eero.com and at checkout, select overnight shipping and then just enter the promo code FOOL. It's Wednesday, December 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Income Investor. Mike Olson in the house. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no we're, problem. We're wrapping up the year, and I think it's fair to say that the biggest story of the year for investors, just in terms of oxygen taken up by the mm-hmm. media, was Bitcoin. And I think the second, third, and fourth biggest stories were related to Bitcoin. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> Which leads to this question You look at a lot of different stocks, a lot of different industries. What's an investing story that really flew under the radar this year for you. So I'm not sure this necessarily flew under the radar. Excellent lead, I know, but um, it's the consumer products companies. Um, it's no secret that the sort of historic sources of advantage for these companies, their brands, marketing might, advertising budgets, distribution, shelf space, those have eroded. And we're talking. Companies that are making products that pretty much everyone listening has in their house. Right, like Pepsi, Coke, Presley. Procter and Gamble. Yep. Campbell's Soup. Mm-hmm. Unilever, Kimberly Clark, toilet paper, diapers. Um, so these companies, you know, what advantages they have have somewhat declined with the emergence of e commerce and the, the sort of theoretical barriers around shelf space, their ability to market on TV, um, you know, with the emergence of targeted advertising. Those advantages have declined. So, this isn't new to anyone. But I think what is particularly interesting is the sort of juxtaposition between this sort of perceived erosion of advantage and the valuations. So, all of these companies, you know, the consequence has been their growth has flatlined. They've been kind of slow to evolve their product portfolios. Um, they don't have those advantages. They're very large. And so, you know, each incremental dollar of sales, of course, can contribute less to growth. But, you know, if you look at Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Nestle, P&G, Unilever, Kimberly Clark, none of them have grown at greater than maybe a mid-single-digit rate on operating profits for the past five years. Pretty meager. Some of these have not grown at all. A lot of them are towards the lower end of that spectrum. So now, what's interesting about that in context is, <clears throat> even as these companies face some of the Sort of strongest headwinds they have in some time. They're also trading at the highest valuations they have since the tech bubble. The S&P Consumer uh, Staples Index is trading at 23 times earnings. I think that's the highest since the tech bubble. Um, Pepsi, Coke, Nestle, P&G, Unilever—they're all trading in or around 25 times earnings. Again, these are historic valuations, and so you kind of have to ask yourself why. Yeah, I, I, I'm just sort of sitting here shaking my head, which obviously makes for great audio. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when some of the names you mentioned, particularly Campbell's Soup, um, which has just struggled mightily of late. So the idea that stocks in this category would still be trading at a premium is, to me, one of the reason one of the reasons that people look at the market today and say this market is overvalued. Right. I mean, I think you know, 
my space or my sort of corner of the world is, you know, the the more staid end of the world, which is dividends. But dividends have become actually quite sexy over the course of maybe the past five years, and it's sort of a function or fixture of the sort of extended low interest rate environment we've dealt in. So why is this happening now? People are going after yield. Um, there are a lot of ETFs oriented towards dividend payers, retail investors, the not so foolish variety. They're hungry for it, and. It's hard to find that, and so each of these companies they have to pay three-ish percent yields, and frequently, frequently you hear about people talking about the, these companies' valuations relative to a bond index. That, that that just doesn't make any sense because I don't care what a bond yields, you know, in as much as it relates to what I will pay for a given company. I'm thinking about the long-term value of the cash flows from this company. So. You've just seen these sort of tremendous distortions in valuation as a consequence of them being these sort of, you know, stalwart yield payers. Do you think there's any reason to own bonds right now? No. For for sort of the average investor. I mean, if you are looking for something which is sort of a cash equivalent where you might need money in the next two years or something like that, yeah, maybe there's a good enough reason. But even then, um, you know what you're getting in excess of cash in most cases is not sufficiently attractive that I, I would really see a reason to do that. Some of the companies that you're talking about, uh, and we've seen this over the past five or six years to some extent with Procter and Gamble, um, and I'm I'm wondering if you think this approach is warranted with, in particular, Pepsi and Coca-Cola and its spinning off brands. Procter and Gamble, for as huge as it is. Used to have more brands under the umbrella, mm-hmm. and five or six years ago, started the process of just shedding a lot of them. It's still a massive company, right? But I'm wondering if you look, you know, if the CEO of Coca-Cola or the CEO of Pepsi comes to you and says, eh, "We're thinking about spinning some of this stuff off." Do you think that makes sense? I mean, I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense in select cases. You don't want to kill your cash cows. Um, but at the very same time, the product portfolios of many of these companies, I mean, Coca-Cola in particular, they are oriented towards products which have sort of profound secular headwinds here. These are fizzy, sugary beverages. Yeah, they are. It's no, I mean, delicious, <laughs> but it's no secret that, you know, if you want to live longer and you want to have quality of life, don't own those things. If I'm, you know, Procter and Gamble, I'm Coke, I'm something like that. I think of my business as if I might sort of, you know, you're sort of an incubator for smaller brands. If I'm Coke, I have the wherewithal to go ahead and, you know, on a lark, buy a tiny coconut water business. And you plug it into that distribution system, and you can, of course, tremendously grow those product lines. And that's kind of what you need to do in order to evolve and respond to changing consumer tastes and preferences. They also need to go ahead and figure out the channel, um, you know, because right now it's not a you know an enormous threat to Coke or something like that. But all these companies need to figure out how they can live in an e-commerce world. Okay, I want to get to your thoughts on 2018 in a second, but first I want to say thanks again to Eero for supporting this episode of Market Fuller. Eero, E E R O. Never think about home Wi-Fi again. They just introduced the second generation Eero and the Eero Beacon. They started in early 2016, and since then, they've learned from hundreds of thousands of systems, making them smarter, faster, and more reliable. The new second-generation Eero and Eero Beacon allow you to build a Wi-Fi system that's more perfectly tailored to your home than ever before. And the newest version 
is now tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor, which lets you do more simultaneously in every room in your house. Expanding your coverage in any room is easy with the Eero Beacon. Simply plug it in the wall and you're covered, and you can add as many beacons as you want. If there's an outlet, you got Wi-Fi. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, he's got an Eero system at home. Feels he, good about it. He's it, nodding. Yeah, he's yeah. It the thumbs up, easy to set up, and it's super fast Wi-Fi. So uh, for free overnight shipping, visit Eero. That's E-E-R-O. Eero.com <laughs> and at checkout, select overnight shipping, and then just enter the promo code Fool to make it free. Um, Twenty eighteen. Yeah. What are in terms of industry? Mm-hmm. What are you watching in twenty eighteen? Boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the movie The Graduate. Ben, I've got just one word for you. Boxes. The future is not plastic. It's, in fact, boxes. Um, so, literally cardboard boxes. Literally cardboard boxes. So, this is a really interesting story, actually. This is an industry that went from sort of a ragged bunch of miscreants maybe 20 years ago, didn't make money, did stupid things consistently, were their own worst enemy, to what appears to be sort of a rational oligopoly. Consistent cash cow, nice tailwind in e-commerce. Basically, they make good money day in, day out. Um, And so, as a consequence of that, a lot of people have questioned whether or not that discipline can persist. And, you know, the fact that they have made so much money for such a long time will indeed attract competition. Um, I don't actually think that's the case, but it's going to be something that's really interesting to watch over the course of the next two or three years. If you put a gun to my head, I couldn't name a single publicly traded, or for that matter, a private cardboard box company. Uh-huh. Like, are these just larger paper goods companies that have a foot in this space, or are there actually pure play cardboard box? So, there are actually pure play cardboard box companies. I mean, some of them, uh, two of the larger companies, International Paper and Packaging Corporation of America. They have a small and sort of declining paper businesses, but by and large, these businesses are exclusively focused on what they call container board. Um, right now, you know, sort of, I guess I hearkened to the idea that the industry was not a particularly good one 20 years ago. It's an industry where there was a tremendous amount of consolidation. It went from maybe five players, 43, they held maybe around 40 something percent capacity, to now five players owning 75 percent. Um, one of the, the second largest one, and one that I'm particularly interested in, is Westrock. Um, this company is probably about half of their business comes from container board, and the other half comes from consumer packaging. You're thinking the sort of paper packaging that is food, frozen food, um, cigarettes, beer, all that. It's basically a cash cow GDP esque business. It's just going to go ahead and pay the bills. The interesting part about that business is indeed the container board side. What's the ticker symbol for Westrock? WRK. So, in the tech industry, when people look at Apple and think to themselves, okay, well, Apple's not making every single part of the iPhone, so I'm going to try and find out what are the companies that are making the components inside the iPhone. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the cardboard box industry, I can't help but wonder, well, who's Amazon working with? Does Amazon have just one supplier for all of their cardboard boxes? Because if they're not, I mean, between them and Walmart, they got to be pretty high up the list of companies that are buying cardboard boxes. Yeah, I mean, most of the companies are they are a little bit quiet about you know just how exposed they are to Amazon. What we do know 
and this has been verified by a few sources, that e-commerce is now 10, about 10% of total box sales. Now, e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales is about 8%. I went ahead and ran the numbers on this a long time ago when I was looking at Amazon, and the, theor the theoretical sort of boundary in terms of you know hard goods that can be transacted vis-a-vis e-commerce is maybe 50 to 60% of total consumer spending, or total retail, I'm sorry. Um, you go ahead, and so then, is it conceivable to think that e-commerce can grow at maybe 15% annualized rates for a long time? Yeah. Um, and so, for the box business, that could very easily add one to two percentage points to that volume growth. Now, this sounds pretty unexciting, but understand this is a 1% growth, volume growth business for maybe the past 10 years. So, that incremental sort of growth is pretty huge, and it's also huge within the context of Westrock's valuation. This is a stock that trades at 11 times free cash flow, so it's hardly a demanding price there. Uh, where are these businesses based? Are they all U.S. based, or are are there cheaper cardboard box makers overseas? <clears throat> so they are all U.S. based, and I'm going to kind of walk out here. So you know, interrupt me when it gets boring. <laughs> um, but I, all right, we've already uh, we've already stopped out, and we're um, out of time. Oh no. Uh, so. The U.S. has this sort of interesting structural advantage when it comes to making boxes. There are two ways you can make boxes. You can use sort of tree inputs, they'll call it virgin fiber, and you can use recycled inputs. The U.S. is one of the few countries which has enough softwood trees that they can go ahead and make boxes by using softwood inputs. That's been a lot cheaper than recycled inputs, because the rest of the world, they do not have enough softwood, enough softwood forest that they can go ahead and use that input price. And so, recycled boxes, they can only be used so many times. You go ahead and consider that in the context of increasing box demand, recycled fiber prices go up. So, U.S. companies have a decided advantage. They will more often than not produce boxes here. Um, when you go ahead and think about boxes too, the other thing that's hard is they don't travel well. This is a low-valued weight product. You that's, don't want to go ahead. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Right, right. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to send a box um, 40, 50, 100, you know, whatever, thousands of miles. You'd all as equal rather go ahead and manufacture it relatively close to the actual end destination. What kind of pricing power does Westrock have relative to a behemoth like International Paper? Uh, Westrock is actually probably, I think they're maybe about 18% of total industry, whereas International Paper is about 25%. Oh, okay. Um, the pricing is generally speaking set, I wouldn't say necessarily by collusion, but, you know. Winking and nod, it is. Um, there was actually an antitrust right. There was an antitrust suit in 2011. Um, so you know, the producers will go ahead and decide that they are going to go ahead and increase prices, as if and when you know they say there's been sufficient raw materials cost pressures, et cetera, et cetera. What we do know is over the course of the past decade. There have been only two times when prices have gone down. In just the past year, they've taken two pretty measurable price bumps. And their customers have by and large sort of, you know, swallowed it just because the degree of consolidation has made it such that they can't do anything but. Um, now that sort of gets to the bigger question, which is, is it possible that there will be new supply? Um, and I don't think that is likely to be the case, just because if you go ahead and look at the arc of how boxes are made, so you have the mills, and they make the sort of like the actual 
what the container board, just that the, the sheets of cardboard, and then you have to send it to a box plant. And the box plant is where they actually you know make them into boxes. When you look at the industry across history, maybe about 25% of box plants were independently held. And so these guys were sort of mercenaries. They were happy to go ahead and take excess supply. They didn't really care about the quality of product. They just wanted to go ahead and get, you know, make boxes and ideally cheaply. So right now, a lot of the a lot of the container board companies have acquired most of the smaller independent box plant manufacturers. And so if you're thinking about adding capacity, it is very difficult to do because there may not be a place to send your boxes. And so that sort of you know, it keeps industry supply demand rational and in turn allows them to raise those prices. All right. Now I'm going to be watching boxes in 2018. Yeah. Mm. Mike Olson, thanks for being here. Thank you, sir. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.